I encourage you to kneel each week when we pray. Uh, it used to be that back in the time of the Reformation, some people thought that this was dishonoring to God because nobody should tell them to do anything that they didn't want to do. That's not really the reason. The reason was that it reminded them of the Roman Catholic Church and anything that reminded them of the Roman Catholic Church was bad. But uh, I don't think kneeling today reminds anybody of the Roman Catholic Church. It reminds us of humility. And so it's a good thing to do. So please join me each week as we come to the Lord in prayer in kneeling and showing our uh, humility before the Lord. I'd ask you to turn this week to the book of Galatians. Um, This week we're reading together and studying verses 7 to 12 of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Let us hear the word of God. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves or castrate themselves. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, this week we come to the part of Galatians where, despite being late in the book, despite being at the part where we see what kind of life we're to lead as Christians, Paul reverts back to the earlier arguments he's been making in this book, the overarching theme of the entire book. And that is the danger that the believers in the Galatian church were facing in the person of false shepherds who were trying to get them to return to the law. And I'm going to repeat this theme over and over again today, but I want it to get into our heads that the danger to our souls today is not the Supreme Court And it's not the movies coming out of Hollywood and it isn't whatever is on television or whatever is on the radio or whatever is printed, whatever is taught in our in our uh, in our classes at the university. These are dangers. But the true danger to the souls of believers is the danger that's always in the church. And the reason I emphasize this is that uh, we're good Americans and we don't like to have problems with other people. We don't like to have fights. But if we're going to fight, we'd prefer that our fights be at a distance from us. And so, you know, having a fight with somebody in Washington, D.C., having a fight with the Supreme Court, it's safe. You know, you're not going to meet a justice. Now, if our church were in Washington, D.C., and some of the justices of the Supreme Court were were attending this church, well, then we might not be willing to be so prophetic about the Supreme Court, right? But what is being prophetic if if you shut up when the person that needs to hear you is right there? You know, like think of uh, Nathan being prophetic to David about his adultery and murder. It would have been a lot easier for him to write a letter to him from, like, Africa, right? But at the end of the story, David's incense, David says, you know, that man should die. And what does Nathan say? You are that man. 
And so a real prophet is a prophet who is a prophet to the people that he knows, that he sits with, that he loves, that he sings with, that he that he eats with. And it's not really being a prophet to talk about how South Africa should change or today in in, in this generation, how, uh, you know, Sudan should change. Now, I guess if you were Sudanese and you lived there, then you would be a prophet. Now, what's my point? Well, I'm not getting into politics. My point is no one's a prophet unless they say it to you personally, face to face. In other words, unless they speak to the person directly. And that means that if you look at Scripture over and over again, what you'll see is that the prophetic ministry of men of God is to the people of God. It's the people that they worship with, the people that they sing with, the people that they're in small groups with. And that's problematic for us. And the reason is that it means that we have to say no to people we know. And we don't like to do that. And so we have to notice right at the beginning here that the Apostle Paul is speaking directly to the people who are in danger because of the error, and he is pointing out to them that it is the people sitting in the pew, the people preaching from their pulpit, who are the problem. Now, I'll return to this theme, but let's move on. All through the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is in agony thinking of the loss of Jesus Christ that this error would mean for the souls that he loves so much. And so again and again and again, he warns them that they can't try to work their way to heaven, that it's a free gift of grace to all who believe, who all who put their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, not their own work. And quite bluntly, he tells them what it would mean if they agreed to do what the false shepherds were trying to get them to do, to be circumcised. We look back in verses one to four, we look at verse two And it says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, what does it mean to have Christ profit us to nothing? Well, it means that we don't go to heaven. It means that we remain under God's judgment and that we go to hell. So if they allowed themselves to be circumcised, Christ is of no use to them. Now, what is the condition of a person for whom Christ is of no use? That's a person that's without hope in this world. And this is what is at stake with this issue of circumcision. He continues in verse 3 of this chapter that we read this morning. He says, For I testify again to every man that's circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, I ask you, do you really think that this is a danger? Or do you think that Paul's lying about this? Do you think that if somebody allows himself to be circumcised, earning their way into heaven, that Christ is of no utility, no effect, that Christ can't help them, that they become without Christ? You see, here we run into a problem where the doctrinal commitments that we have concerning eternal security are in competition with the real warnings that are given in Scripture. We all look at everybody in this church and we say, well, we're all saved. We've all put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, most of us. And so we're all headed to heaven and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And and Paul says, I tell you, if you're circumcised, then Christ is of no use to you. 
we all look at each other and we say, oh, yeah, hypothetically, <laughs> you know, I suppose, you know, academically, I suppose, well, you know, maybe there is some. I mean, I'm not going to argue with Paul. And see, right there, our theology causes us to cut the guts out of Scripture. Because unless this is a real problem that Paul is speaking to, then he's lying. It doesn't make any sense to warn about something that's impossible. And you say, yeah, but I believe in eternal security. And I say, I do too. But how good do you think are the counterfeits that Satan makes? Do you think that the church has people in it who are themselves fooled and who have fooled the elders in listening to their confession of faith and who, in fact, are not in Christ? This is one of the real problems that we have in the church is dealing with the fact that uh, constantly in the church is a mixture of those who believe and those who don't believe. And... uh, Today, we have been taught very, very carefully the right things to say. And uh, so consequently, unless uh, we, have, uh, we are mentally retarded or a young child, when we meet with the elders, we know exactly what to say. And this is why uh, my friend Vern Poitras says that maybe mentally retarded people and children are in a better position to be trusted by the elders than adults. And the reason is that they're not trying to couch their words properly as they've heard them over and over again on the radio. They're they're speaking truth. And the rest of us speak what we know the elders want to hear. And so I think we have to look at this text in the whole of the book of Galatians and, of course, many other places in Scripture, notably the book of Hebrews. And we have to realize that there is a real danger in every church. And the danger is that the cross of Christ will be emptied of its scandal, that the cross of Christ will have a competitor, that the work of Christ will be displaced by the works of our hands, by our desire to trust in ourselves and our goodness, whatever goodness it is. And that if this happens, the danger is that Christ is worthless to us. And if you stand before the judgment seat of God and Christ is worthless to you, you are without hope eternally. Now, I think we can all agree on that. Standing before God without having the righteousness of Christ, there's no hope. Do we all agree with that? And so if Paul says that this is what is at stake in this theological discussion... It must really be at stake. So, he says that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing, verse 2. And we move on, and he returns to the work of warning them after verse 6. And in verse 7, he says, You were war- running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The members of the Galatian church were falling away from the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And instead, they were turning to their own work, which is just beginning and will soon lead them to be circumcised. The act of obedience that the false shepherds have assured them will contribute to or assure their salvation. So they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ 
But now, no longer, their faith, their path, their race, their running has been turned aside. A stumbling block has been put in front of them. And it is an obstacle. It is hindering them from running the race of faith. It's interesting that in chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says about himself, he says in describing how he went about preaching the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, he says, I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation. And then he says this, he says, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. And we see this theme regularly in Scripture, this, this theme of running, of running the race. The Apostle Paul says he might have run in vain. He says in verse 7, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So in the past, Paul was in danger of having run in vain. And in the present, the danger the believers face in the church in Galatia is that they will run in vain for nothing that they will be hindered in their running, that halfway through the race, all their prior progress may well be lost. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now again, here's this theme we see. What's the theme? You say, how could Paul be a castaway? Paul is the one that's defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says to him that he brings his body into submission lest he himself be a castaway. It must be a real danger. In Acts 20:24. 20, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Again, he's finishing his course well. Now, what's the goal of a race? Well, the goal is certainly not to get lost. A few weeks ago, Taylor was running cross country and the course wasn't clear. And uh, so, whereas other people stayed on the course, Taylor left the course and he went off. And, uh, you know, you might say that somebody set up an obstacle for him that got him off the course. It was sweet at the end of the race, the kid that was uh, right in front of him uh, told the judges that he, Taylor actually should be in front of him because Taylor had run additional distance that he didn't have to run. And so he would have actually beat him, you know. And, you know, you think about this, you think about Pilgrim's progress and, you know, all the detours that Pilgrim is seduced into taking. And then you come back to the book of Galatians and you, you see this obstacle in the path of their running. You see this theme of running, of finishing the course. The goal when you're running a race isn't to get lost or to run into an obstacle and fall down and, you know, maybe sprain an ankle or break a leg and have to be caught, you know, uh, carried from the course. But it's to finish the race and maybe place in the top ten or maybe even win the race. And at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says about himself, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And so what is at stake with this, this talk of running the race, of finishing the course? Well, what's at stake is keeping the faith. 
And what's the opposite of keeping the faith? Well, the opposite of keeping the faith is to betray or to deny the faith. Now, remember, I said that our theology does not like the way Paul speaks. It doesn't like the way Scripture speaks because we want to use Scripture to trump Scripture. But again, there must be a danger of us betraying and denying the faith. Otherwise, what's the point of these warnings? What's the point of Paul saying, I've kept the faith? Unless he could have not kept the faith. Now, it's all well and fine to talk about this in the past or in Scripture, but when it comes into the church, it gets very tense. Are you aware that one of the marks of a church is that it disciplines its members? And when the elders discipline members, in the vast majority of cases, the member is restored. Discipline starts with you coming to worship and sitting under the preaching of the Word and the reading of the Word and the explanation of the Word. The discipline of having to relate to the people in the pews, of having to love and to accept other people who are different than yourself. All these are disciplines. But there are times where the discipline that begins in worship and works its way to private consultation and works its way to private rebuke, there are times when nothing works. And in such a case, what does happen? The person is excommunicated, disfellowshipped. And this has happened a couple of times in the last few years in this church. Now, what is going on when someone is disfellowshipped, excommunicated? What's going on is that that person has not kept the faith. That person has denied the faith. That person has betrayed the faith. You remember at the book of Corinthians when the Apostle Paul says that the man who had his father's wife should be cast out. That's excommunication. And immediately we know that they were like us because the Apostle Paul immediately afterwards says, uh, no, don't think we shouldn't judge. It's the people outside of the church you're not to judge, but are we not to judge those in the church? And so it's always the same. We always want to judge those outside the church, but not to judge those inside the church because those outside the church don't matter as much to us as those inside the church, right? And you might say, well, what's wrong with the elders that they let people in like that anyway? Shouldn't those Corinthian elders have been able to predict that this man was going to have his father's wife? Well, now. I mean, can you predict your own perversity? I can't. I'm always, well, not always, but I'm frequently shocked by my own sin. And so, no, the elders can't predict what's going to happen to everybody in a church. But even if they could predict, should the church be filled with people who will absolutely make it to the end? Is that, is that the correct notion of the church, that there should never be people in it that will betray the faith? Is that, is that what we should be striving for? Scrupulosity in who's a part of the church? Well, no, because Jesus told the story of the wheat and the tares. And the whole point of the story of the wheat and the tares is that we should not be too scrupulous about who is a member of the church. Okay? In other words, 
always in the church is a mixture of wheat and what? Tares. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have told the story of the wheat and the tares. He wouldn't have exhorted the elders not to be too scrupulous. Now, (laughs) this one's going to throw you for a loop, but um, if you have a notion that there should never be those who do not belong to God among the people of God, how do you deal with the fact that Judas sat at the table in the upper room right before Christ's crucifixion? Did this catch Jesus by surprise? Now, I'm just sowing seeds of doubt in your mind. But it is a scandal to us, isn't it, with our notion that the church only has Christians in it, that they're seated at the table in the upper room with Judas. Now, I don't think we should go out and find a Judas and bring him into membership in the church. But I think what we have to do is remind ourselves that judgment is to begin where? In the house of God. Not being prophetic with, you know, Disney or MGM or whatever the movie companies are. Not being prophetic with Washington or the Supreme Court. I'm not saying we shouldn't be. Some have that as a calling from God. But what I am saying is that here in the household of God is the place where we are to judge one another. Now, does this mean that if, you know, uh, <laughs> i got to think of a civilized example. Um, Oh, I don't know. You know, most churches you go into, they tell you, please don't bring coffee into the sanctuary, right? Because the deacons don't want it staining the carpet, right? Okay, and you see somebody coming into the sanctuary with coffee and you think, let judgment begin and let it begin in the house of God. And so you like go up to them and tell them, We don't allow coffee in our sanctuary, right? Is that a good place for judgment to begin? In other words, look, love covers a multitude of sins. There's a lot of things worse than having a stained carpet, right? And I used to clean carpet, so I love clean carpet. But there are things that are a lot worse than dirty carpet, right? And so when I say let judgment begin in the house of God, I'm quoting Scripture, and that does not mean that Scripture is telling us to be nitpickers. All right? But, again, when it matters, we are supposed to act as if it matters. And if we see that regularly there are those who turn out to have betrayed the faith and that at times some of them are excommunicated, this should not scandalize us. This should encourage us because we see that what went on in the Word of God is what's going on today in the church. Now, on the other side, if we see that we're a part of a church that never ever excommunicates anyone, isn't that sweet? And I'm being cynical. What a joke! How could you possibly have a church today in America that all of a sudden... Whoopee! Doesn't need to excommunicate anyone. I mean, it's absurd. Come on, laugh. It is. It's absurd that you would be a part of a church that never saw the need to do anything close to what you see always in Scripture. Okay, come on. Come on. This is the relentless job of a preacher in a day when all that matters is that we get along with each other. 
Because you're not scandalized when the Bible tells you to be sexually pure. You just don't do it. But you don't ever fault me for telling you to be sexually pure. But boy, when this text of Scripture and, and, and hundreds and thousands of other texts come up, you do get angry. You don't like it. And it's not just you, but it's you and it's, it's all of us. We don't like it because America has, has corrupted our thinking and our hearts such that the only thing that matters to us is that we appear to be ladies and gentlemen. Okay? You know what Scripture says to being ladies and gentlemen? It says to hell with it. That's what Scripture says. Now, you're uncomfortable, so I'll move on. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he has what? He has denied the faith. Again, I want you to understand, these are not hypotheticals. These aren't something that could conceivably be true. These are things that happen. There are those who deny the faith. In Revelation 2.13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. And so there we see the wonderful statement of of God, that they had not denied the faith. And so this is what is at stake with the members of the Galatian church. There are false shepherds doing their best to waylay them during their race and lead them off the course, injured and unable to complete it. They've placed obstacles in the path of the Galatians, and those obstacles are accomplishing the the purpose that the false shepherds had in setting them out around the course. The race started well with the Galatians keeping their eyes on the course and staying with the pack, pacing themselves well, remembering the goal, but now they've been hindered. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, who was it? Well, in verse 8 it says, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Now, who is it who calls us? In Romans 9.11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of what? Because of Him who calls. Now, who is it who calls? It's God. It's God who calls us. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. In Acts 2.39, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. What? As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Romans 8.28, we love this verse, but listen to it with new ears. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are what? Who are called according to His purposes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also what? He called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Not a whole lot of talk about what the people did in that section, is there? 
Now, in case there's any confusion that we called ourselves and that this is what the Holy Spirit is referring to in each of these cases, we have our Lord himself making it clear, not positively, but negatively. And I want to say to you that uh, really the test of any truth is not so much what you're willing to say positively, but what you're willing to say negatively. And Jesus knew how, how, how weaselly we would be on this. And so Jesus made it very, very clear in John 15:16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And so what we see here is that the one leading them away from obedience to the truth is is not the one who called them. It's not God. God's not the one that's persuading them differently. Then who is it? Well, it's the devil. And in 1 Peter 5, we're told, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so it's not the Holy Spirit, it's not God who is misleading them. It's not the one who called them, but rather it is the evil one. And then Paul makes this statement in verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, you need to know that in Scripture, the word leaven stands in for everything evil and for sin. And so at the beginning of the high religious uh, holiday of the Old Testament Passover, they would go through the house and they'd remove every trace of leaven. And this was a symbolic act of purifying themselves, removing every taint of sin so that they could be holy before God. And so when the Apostle Paul says here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, what he's saying is, you allow this false doctrine into the church, and what's going to happen is what? What's going to happen is, it's going to corrupt the whole church. And so what do you do with leaven? You remove leaven. In 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Paul's speaking to another church that wanted to tolerate sin. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven and let's celebrate the Passover. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let us come each week into this house of worship without leaven. And then in verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. And so here we have a loving father looking at his son and saying, I'm confident that you're going to do what I ask you to do. Well, he's not really confident, is he? Is he confident that these people are not in danger, that he can trust them to do what is right? Is he confident that ultimately their good breeding will show up? Is he confident that ultimately they're going to be good folks? 
good Presbyterians, good Baptists, nice people. I remember once talking to an elder of a church who was consistently and persistently opposed to ever saying no to anybody in the church. He thought that the church existed to say yes every day in every way. And so I was talking to him about a particular woman who had consistently defied the board of elders. They'd send somebody to talk to her privately, and then she'd turn right around and do what they told her not to do. And it went on and on and on, right? And so I was sitting having lunch with this elder over at McCree's one day, and and I said to him, um, I said, uh, you know, don't, don't you think that, uh, you, you know, that this woman should, should be rebuked for what she's done? And the man said, well, but, but, uh, but she's a Christian. And I said, well, of course she's a Christian. And I named one of his daughters and I said, when, when this daughter of yours was growing up and you disciplined her, did she turn around and look at you and say, but I'm a Bailey. <laughs> you get my point? Taylor looks at me and says, how could you discipline me? I'm a Bailey. What do I say? I say, yes, that's why I'm disciplining you. All right. And what was really interesting to me is I used that illustration with him. And then he looked at me and he said this. He said, but she's a nice person. You start with her being a Christian and then you really work your way up to what matters. <laughs> She's a nice person. <laughs> oh my. Paul says, I have confidence in you that you will adopt no other view. Is that what he said? Is that what he said? What did he say? He said, I have confidence in you that you will adopt no other view. Is that what he said now? He said, I have confidence in you, what? In the Lord. Paul's confidence is not in the flesh. Paul's confidence is in the work of the Lord in the flesh. I'm not confident about anything with myself or Taylor, but I am confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Now, it would be all well and nice if we stopped there, wouldn't it? There's one more little thing. And what is that one more little thing? He says, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And so they were accusing him of being in agreement with them, the false shepherds. They were telling him that he, in fact, uh, had himself preached circumcision. We don't know exactly what this might refer to. It might refer to the fact that they had that he had Timothy circumcised. Uh, it might refer to the fact that prior to Paul becoming a Christian, that he would encourage uh, converts to Judaism who were Gentiles to be circumcised. We don't know. But he says, look, if I were still preaching circumcision, he says what? He says, why would I suffer? Then nobody would be opposed to me. So why am I suffering? And then he says, plus the cross of Christ would no longer be a scandal. The, the, the scandal of the cross would be gone. In other words, if you just take a little bit of the action of man, a little bit of the pride of man, a little bit of the worth, self-worth of a man, and you bring it over and bring it next to the cross, well, then you don't really need the cross because you're really coming in yourself. 
And so the cross isn't scandalous to a man that can maintain his pride and his sense of self-accomplishment and worship at the same time. Do you understand that? If you allow a man just a little bit of his own works, then the cross isn't an obstacle because you come to the cross how? You come to the cross flat. You're on your face in the dust and you're bringing nothing in your hands. And so Paul says, you say I'm still preaching circumcision? No, I'm suffering. And if I were still preaching circumcision, you wouldn't be punishing me. I wouldn't be being, you know, made fun of, mocked and pushed around. And furthermore, the cross would be emptied of all of its scandal. Now, at this point, the Apostle Paul engages in one last statement before we end. And it is verse 12. I wish that those who are troubling you would even castrate themselves. Now, the Apostle Paul is not talking about the Supreme Court justices in Washington, D.C. The Apostle Paul is speaking of men who hold the position of teaching and influencing other people in the church. And he says, I wish they'd castrate themselves. Not only that, but he writes it down. You know, you know, you can say things to people in person that you don't put in an email. The Lord has protected me from ever having a mistake that I almost made yesterday. Uh, <laughs> it was close. Uh, you know who you address your emails to and who you don't. Somebody told me a story that I've heard before this last week, and it happens, I'm sure, all the time where somebody was uh, sending an email to someone else uh, in their church and happened to include all of the texts of her adulterous uh, relationship with her lover. As she was pursuing a divorce, she happened to include to somebody in the church long, long, long series of back and forth between the man she was committing adultery with, and she sent it off. Well, that's not what almost happened to me today, or yesterday. What happened to me yesterday was I was working to have somebody have somebody else over to their house for a meal with their family. And I was I was scheming because I was trying to get them to witness to this person. This is over in Europe. And then I sent an email to the person I wanted them to have over, but I, I mixed up the addresses so that all the description of who this woman is and, and what her spiritual needs are and what her background is and everything. <laughs> and so I went ahead and queued it. And then I had something to add to it. So I went back into the queue and I hadn't clicked send, right? And I opened it up and I go, oh, no. And I took out the two field and, and removed it. <laughs> Then looked at it again, saw it was removed. That wouldn't have been a big deal. But when we think about uh, the Apostle Paul, it would be one thing for us to hear that he had uttered something like this in a congregational meeting or in an elders meeting. But man, when he writes it down in Scripture, and then when it's Scripture and it's recorded all through the ages, do you feel the weight of this? That he's telling these people to go ahead and castrate themselves. Can you think of anything more insulting? There's nothing. I mean, this is the ultimate thing, right? Even in the Navy, is there anything beyond that? I don't think so. Maybe there is. 
I don't think so. Now, what's the point to be made from this verse? Well, the point to be made is that two things. First of all, that we need to be very suspicious of our sensibilities and of our our understanding of what it means to be a lady or a gentleman, what it means to be a preacher. Um, Because obviously the church today is not in a better condition than it was then. I mean, are you willing to grant that? That the church today is, is, is probably similar to the church at the time. Obviously, in the church today, there are threats to the souls of the people in the church that are on the level of the threat that the Apostle Paul was dealing with. Is, is this true? Or are we in a time of revival and reform when... Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous to even say that, right? What's very interesting to me is that all through the ages, what Paul says has been a scandal. If you go back a century ago, William Ramsey, who was a a great scholar of Scripture, um, who was uh, in England, William Ramsey referred to this statement by the Apostle Paul as, quote, disgusting, unquote. Now, we can escape it a little bit just saying, well, he's a Brit, you know, and uh, propriety is important to the Brits. But if we go back to the time of Calvin and Luther, everybody that deals with this text says something like this. This is Luther. Is this the part of an apostle not only to denounce the false apostles to be troublers of the church, but to condemn them and to deliver them to Satan and to wish that they might be utterly rooted out and perish? What is this but plain cursing? Well, what does Luther say? That this was Paul's a personality? No, he says this. He says, Paul does well in cursing these troublers, and this cursing proceeds from the Holy Ghost. Peter also, in the eighth of the Acts, cursed Simon the sorcerer, saying, your money and you perish together, which would be similar to us saying, may you and your money go to hell. That's that's what he's saying, and that's what scholars will translate, paraphrase that at. And if we don't like Luther, we go to Calvin, and Calvin says this, For though it be but Paul that has spoken it, yet the Holy Ghost guided and governed his tongue. Now, what I want from you is this. I want you to admit that you do not like the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote this. And I want you to admit the fact that because you don't like the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote this, you don't like the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this. Okay? I want you to admit that fact. And then I want you to admit the fact that this shows that you do not love the truth of God and the souls of Christians. You don't like what Paul wrote. And consequently, you do not love God's truth and his people. Or another way of saying it is, and this is positive, if you do like what Paul wrote, then you do love the truth and you do love the people of God. Do you understand? Here's what Calvin says. He says, give me one second. It's on page 10. And now it's vanished. 
I know I have a page. Well, maybe I don't have a page 10. Well, I'm lost. I go from 7, 8. Oh, here it is. Okay. Okay. The Apostle Paul, or John Calvin, let's see, here he is. Okay. Indeed, it is appropriate to repeat here once again what I mentioned before. Fault must not always be found with the servants of Christ if they're driven with violent force against professed enemies of sound doctrine, unless one is perhaps disposed to accuse the Holy Spirit of lack of moderation. The vehemence of holy zeal and of the Holy Spirit in the prophets was like that. And if soft, effeminate men think it stormy, they don't consider how dear and precious God's truth is to him. Now, is there anything about the Apostle Paul that is not good for us here in this text? No, this is good for us. It's good for us to see him acting in this way. It's good for us as fathers to have a model of how we're supposed to be fathers. I'm not saying that you should have his personality, but I am saying that there are times where it is appropriate to use this sort of force. I don't know what the application is in your home, your marriage, your relationship with your children. I don't know what the application is to your work as a pastor or as elders or as teachers. But I do know that this is not an indication of the Apostle Paul's failure, but of his success in being a lover of God's truth and a lover of God's people. All right. So if you say the Apostle Paul is harsh, you have one of two choices. You can either condemn him or you can love him for being harsh. He is harsh. Now, let's close by singing a hymn that lifts up the truths that Paul is defending. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load.